3, verses 12 through 21. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3, 12 through 21. Good morning. We are in Romans chapter 7. Lord willing, we'll complete chapter 7 today. Okay, some of you look skeptical. <clears throat> we will try to complete chapter 7 today. Romans chapter 7 has been an interesting study for us. It has been uh, very unusual uh, verses 1 through 13, it seems to be talking about uh, the life of a non-believer. It seems to be talking about a life of a non-believer trying to earn his way to heaven. And how a non-believer, with every attempt to try to do good things, will end up doing the sinful thing. In other words, we found out that the sin nature in a non-believer causes sinful passions which lead to sinful actions. Then, in verse 14 through 25, it changed. Paul starts talking about himself as a pronoun, I, and talks about uh, present tense verbs. It seems like he's talking about actions that now apply to himself in the spiritual walk that he's at. So now he starts talking about the battle that seems to go on between believers and their sin nature. Their sin nature still wants to do the same thing. It still wants to sin. And the sin nature will battle against the believer's new, recreated, new birth, born again, redeemed, justified self. The inner man. My new mind. And tries to get our new mind and our inner man to commit sins just like we always did before salvation, with sinful passions and sinful actions. And Paul talks about the battle that goes on between a believer 
and his sin nature. Last week we talked about the two different directions. We talked about the direction of the sin nature and how the law of sin goes that way, opposite of God's desire for you, the will of God, you might say, going this way. That your inner man wants to go this way. That the inner man desires to go this way. But because of the temptation that comes from sin nature, sometimes we give in to the power of the sin nature and we sin. Now, what do we do about this, Paul? Please help us, Paul. Verse 24. Verse 24. The wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who will set me free from the body of this death? Very interesting verse in 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, verse 2. Let me read it for you. Don't turn there. Don't get time. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. These are things that non-believers do. This is things that your sin nature wants you to do. And then it says something very interesting. Ungrateful. Ungrateful. In other words, if you are ungrateful, if you're following your sin nature, you will never be thankful. You'll never be thankful following and doing what your sin nature wants you to do. 2 Timothy tries to tell you that you will always be in this situation. I've told you before how I like to go to stores or restaurants where other people are at and open doors for them. Because I want to see what they'll say. A lot of them mutter. And I don't know what they mean by that. Some of them say thank you. Some of them don't. And it's very interesting that somehow the idea of thankfulness is a Christian, let's put it this way, an inner man or a new mind or a new self possession. For a believer, saying thanks should be automatic for us. But it's hard. It may be... Uh, <clears throat> like this uh, little girl who was uh, three years old in France. Uh, she got the bronze medal. I don't know what you get that for. Acts of courage and dangerous sacrifice. Gave this medal in France to a three-year-old girl. Wow, sounds crazy. What, what'd she do? Well, she was playing, and her two-year-old friend fell into the swimming pool. Her two-year-old friend, Dennis, fell into the swimming pool. She's three years old. She grabbed him by the hair and held his hair head out of water so he didn't drown. So she reached into the pool, grabbed his hair, pulled his hair up, got his head out of the water, and started yelling for help. People came, saved his life. She gets the bronze medal. So, newspaper was talking to her and asked her how she's doing and how's her relationship with Dennis going. And she said this, quote, he doesn't like me now. 
he doesn't like me now because it hurt when I pulled his hair. Sometimes it's hard for people to thank someone else. Sometimes, sometimes when you need to thank somebody, it's after they pulled your hair and you experienced pain. But there should be thanks. It's kind of like a farmer who went to a large town. He went to a large town and sat in the restaurant. And before eating, the farmer bowed his hair and prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. And seeing this, a young man in the restaurant sneered at him and said, at, and said in a very loud voice, said, Old man, back where you come from, does everyone pray before he eats? Does everyone pray before they eat? Where you come from, farmer? Huh? Farmer quietly replied, Well, the hogs don't. Chapter 7, we finally get to the completion of this chapter-long, hard-for-us-to-hear, hard-for-us-to-preach message about sin and the battle we have with sin. Now we get to the place where we come to some conclusions and give us an introduction into the answer of chapter 8. So... Turn your seatbelts on. Let's go. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? What problems occur to a strong growing believer in his sanctification? A strong growing believer in his sanctification. Here you go. Problem number one. The more a believer grows, in his relationship with Jesus Christ, the more he hates his sin nature. The more you grow in your sanctification, being more like Christ, abiding with Christ, growing with Christ, studying your Bible, praying, <clears throat> evangelizing, all the things that you do to grow in your walk with God, the more you grow, the more you will hate your sin nature. And those sins you commit, you will hate. Here is Paul, one of the spiritual giants in our universe, saying that he hates it when he sins. Now, first off, I have a hard time thinking of St. Paul sinning. But he did. Because his sin nature in him did the same thing your sin nature does to you. It tempts you to not trust the Word of God and to sin. And when that happens in your life, if you do not rely upon the gifts that God gives you to defeat that temptation, you will sin. It's not surprising. And you look at yourself and you say, the wretched man that I am. This man that delights in the moral law of God, that desires to do the moral law of God, that finds himself not able to do it, he calls himself the wretched man that he is. In other words, the stronger you get in your spiritual walk with God, the more you will hate your sin nature. 
the more you will hate. In other words, let's put it the other way. If you have, let's say, um, oh, I don't know what, what, I don't know, I don't even want to pretend to know your sin life, okay? But let's say this afternoon you did something, quote-unquote, sinful, that you have a habit of doing, and you do it, whatever that is. I don't want to know, don't share your sins with me. You sin. Now, if you sin this afternoon, and you know you sin because you had an evil passion, and that passion became an action through your members of your body, and you sin. If you are okay with that, that shows you there's something wrong in your spiritual walk with God. Now, when you sin, the more you grow in your sanctification, the more that should bother you. You should hate it. You should crumble and say, the wretched man that I am. The best of all sinners I am. I am number one sinner in Kansas. I can do it better than anybody else. I hate this. God help me. When we get into a place where we sin and we don't, we're not concerned about it, something's wrong. We need to be in a place in our spiritual walk with God where we agree with Paul that we don't like losing the battle with our sin nature. We want to win with the gifts that God gives us so we can be victorious over our sin nature. The mature believer knows how holy, holy, holy God is. I like that little Hebrew there for you. They don't have greater, greatest, greatest. They can repeat words. Holy, holy, holy. A mature believer understands the battle between sin nature and the inner man. And you do not want to sin. So, when we are walking, trying to do God's will, we have to say no to our sin nature and yes to God. And yes to the gifts He gives us. And yes to the resources He gives us. And we have to then rely upon somebody to give us victory over our sin nature. Now, Paul tells us who that is. Do you want to know? Okay, good. Here you go. Five things. Five characteristics that God gives a person who is powerful enough to free you as a believer from your sin nature. Who qualifies to give you victory over your sin nature? Who can do it? Here you go, number one. Number one. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Who will set me free? In other words, is the person. He has to set you free. He has to have the ability to, he must be able to rescue the believer from the danger of temptation. There has to be a person that is free from temptation that can rescue you when you go and you are thinking about a sinful passion. 
and you're going through that temptation, there has to be somebody that is powerful enough to defeat that temptation. You have to have a relationship with this person so that you can have victory over your temptation. How can, who can set you free? Who will set you free? Who will be the protector from temptation? Who will be your savior, your redeemer? Who will help you set you free? I mentioned in Sunday school, this word free is used outside the Bible, talking about somebody in the battlefield who goes back to the battlefield to rescue his injured friend from the enemy. He goes into the battlefield and rescues his friend and frees him from the enemy. You need somebody to come get you on the battlefield because you are injured and hurt and cannot do anything to free yourself from sin. We've talked about it whole chapter 7. The sin will happen. The more you try to do, the more you have a desire to do, you will fall short because of your sin nature if you try to do it on your own. You need somebody to come to the battlefield and save you from the battle that you're losing. A believer longs to be rescued from his sin nature. There's going to be a future day when the perishable will be changed to imperishable. And the presence of sin will be removed completely. But in between now and then, there is somebody who gives you gifts so that you can be free. Who is that person? Wait. Don't guess. Number two. Verse 24. Who has set me free from the body of this death. Set you free from the body of this death. Who are the characteristics of a person who is powerful enough to free a believer from his sin nature? Number two. He must be able to deliver a believer from the danger of sin. He must have the reputation of defeating sin. He has to have the ability to to not give in to temptation. He has to have the ability of someone that doesn't fall to sin. Someone who doesn't commit sin. He has to be able to save you from the danger of sin. The body. Remember the body in chapter 7, when he uses the term body, he's talking about your actions of sin. When your sinful passions produce actions of sin, you still are trying to do the sanctification thing, you're trying to grow in holiness, but you sin. Romans 8 verse 10 talks about if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Your body is dead. Your sinful body has to do with the physical helplessness of your body and the tendency to sin. You need someone to help you because you have a sinful body and it's dead. It's deadly. It's connected to death. And in chapter 7, death is talking about powerless, dead, defeated by sin. It's controlled by your sin nature. It controls you and you're helpless. You're helpless. Um, Paul was from Tarsus in Asia Minor. And they had a sentence. When you were convicted of murdering somebody, they would do something very gruesome and they would tie the corpse of the slain person to the person that murdered him. 
So you would carry around this dead person chained to you, bound, roped to you, and you would carry him around. And by the way, you know what would happen? You would die a slow death carrying around a dead body. The corpse of the slain person was lashed tightly to the body of the murderer and remained there until the murderer himself died. It would only take a few days. It may have been the thing that Paul's thinking about here. That you have a body of death tied to you. And it's because of your sin nature. And it doesn't do anything healthy you want it to do. It does only dead, deadly things, deathful things. He must be able to deliver you from the danger of sin. Number three, third characteristic. <clears throat> Verse 25. Thanks be to God through whom Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, thanks be to God. What are the characteristics of a person who is powerful enough to free you, believer, from his sin nature? Number three, he must be able to be worthy of praise. He must be able to be worthy of praise. He must do a work so that you thank him and praise him. You ever do that? Take your car to a mechanic and he doesn't fix it? He doesn't get much praise, does he? Okay? You want the person you praise to do the work. You have a problem. You're tied to the dead body called your sin nature. You need somebody to bring you life. And he must be worthy of praise. He must be able to get the job done. The believer gives thanks to God even before he's rescued. We haven't got to the rescue part. Rescue part's chapter 8. And we're praising God already in chapter 7. By the mercy of God, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, defeats the sin nature that allows a believer to obey the moral law of God. We thank God for the gifts He gives to us, which will defeat our temptation to sin and to defeat the deadness that comes with sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, But thanks be to God, though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. God deserves your thanks. He's the one that does the work. Okay, fourth thing. Here we go, number four. What are the characteristics of a person who's powerful enough to free a believer from his sin nature? Notice what it says, 725. It says, thanks be to... What's the word? Thanks be to... Oh, you're whispering. Quit whispering. There's no whispering in church. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Number four. He must be able to fulfill the duties of being God. He's got to be equal enough to take the title God. He's got to be of the essence of God. He has to be God. God is the king of the universe. God is the creator of the universe. God is God. Old Testament, the words Elohim, Hebrew, it, it talks about the fullness of God, the riches, the richness of the essence of God. 680 times in the Old Testament, God. It emphasizes God being the creator. He created this. 
God is the one with all strength. He's the one that has all might of all things. He is stronger than anything. He is able to defeat your sin nature because he's God. The name of God means strong one, the mighty one, the mighty leader, the supreme deity. He is God. And in order for you to have victory over your sin nature, you need God. Number five. Number five. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What are the characteristics of a person who's powerful enough to free you, a believer, from his sin nature? Number five, he must be able to fulfill the duties of being my kinsman. Being my kinsman. He has to be a relationship to me. He needs to be related to me. He needs to have a relationship with me. He needs to be human. He needs to be fully God and fully human. He needs to be Jesus. He needs to be Jesus. He needs to be a man who lives under the law. He needs to be a person born under the law. He needs to be a person that keeps the law. Now, by the way, if you have any, hear any theory about Jesus committing sins, you can't believe it. Because if he committed one sin, we are doomed. We need a kinsman that keeps the law perfectly. We need a kinsman, somebody related to us. Through the work of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus gives the believer the gift of peace. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's talked about Adam in the past and talked about Jesus in the past. Talked about Adam not able to keep the law. Talked about the law not being able to keep itself. And the only one effective in committing the work that can save you from your sin nature is Jesus. The reign of grace and peace comes only through Jesus. Wait, there's more. Number six. Number six. What are the characteristics of a person who is powerful enough to free a believer from his sin nature? Thanks be to God through Jesus. What's the next one? Christ. Now, I'm sorry, that's a bad translation in your Bibles. It should be Messiah. If you really want a good translation, it should be anointed one. Anointed one. You need an anointed one. You need a Messiah. You need a Christ. Let's put it this way. Number six. He must be able to fulfill the duties of being my Messiah. He has to be my Messiah. He has to fulfill all the requirements in the Old Testament to be my Messiah. He has to be the one. This describes his office, his position, his title. He has to be the Messiah. He has to be the anointed one by God the Father. He is Christ because he's been anointed by God the Father. That makes him king and priest and prophet. We have to have him as Christ.
Number seven, we're not done. What are the characteristics of a person who's powerful enough to free a believer from his sin nature? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our, what's the word? Lord. Lord. Number seven, he must be able to fulfill the duties of being my commander. My commander. He is my commander in chief. He is number one on my priority list. He is the one I try to please every day. He is the only one I try to please every day. I want him happy with my job. I want to serve him and follow him and do what the commander says. He is my Lord. He is my Lord. He's my master. He's my commander. He's my Lord. This is talking about his relationship with believers, with us. Our relationship, he is the Lord, we are the servants. He has legal power over me. He has the ability to tell me what to do. If he tells me to hop, guess what I'm to do? Hop. Oh, come on, that was funny. (laughs) Come on. Whatever the master tells you to do, you servants of his, because he's taking care of defeating your sin nature, you have a reason to praise him and thank him. You do it because he is your Lord. He has legal power over you. The term Lord occurs 44 times in the book of Romans. Lord. The gospel message centers upon Jesus Christ, our Lord, Redeemer, King, and Master. He is everything. Now, understand what we've put together here this morning. You have problems. You still sin. Boo. Bad. Okay? You sin. You even sin when you try to do something good. You sin. You sinners. Boo. Now, that's a problem. If you had nothing but your sin, you would be a wretched person. But God in His love gave you somebody. Gave you somebody that can solve your problems. He is God. He gives you, He is somebody we can praise because he'll solve our problems. He is somebody that is Jesus, our kinsman. He is somebody that is Christ, our Messiah. And he is the commander-in-chief. He is the number one guy in the universe. We have somebody on our side. And something as little as our sin nature cannot defeat him. Matter of fact, he's proved it. He lived a life... 30 some odd years on this planet under the same temptations that you and I are living under and we fail, but he did not fail. Those 30 some odd years, he lived perfectly under the law. And then he went to a cross and he willingly gave up his life to cover and shed his blood to cover your sins, not his, yours so that you can have a way of defeating your sin nature and having victory over your sin nature. You can do it because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, 
sin nature? Boo. Jesus Christ? Yay. It sounds simple, doesn't it? It sounds so easy. I know which side I want to pick. I know which team I want to be on. I know, I know, I know. But there are days, there are moments, there are minutes, there are hours where we decide to follow our sin nature. And we sin. We sin. Here's the dilemma. What is the will of God for a believer living in America? What is the will of God for a believer living in America? What does God want you to do this week living in America? Living on this planet. What's he want you to do? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then. So then. By the way, that's written in such a way that you understand Paul is summing up chapter 7. He's giving you the conclusion of chapter 7. On the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. I, myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. What is the will of God for a believer in a living in America? Here you go. Number one, the only answer. The believer is to be a servant of the moral law of God. If you have a choice of what to do this afternoon, <clears throat> you choose to do the moral law of God. Whatever God commands, you do. And you do it because of the work of Jesus Christ. You do it not in your own effort, not in your own power, but you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. You do it because of your work of your Savior. You do it because of the work, the love and mercy and grace of your God. You do it even before you are saved, this afternoon from sin, you thank Him now. You praise Him now. Believers are to be a servant of the moral law of God. With my mind. Again, the mind in chapter 7 is talking about your inner man, about the redeemed self, about the justified self that you are. You've been justified. You have a new mind. With that mind, a believer is to serve the moral law of God. You say in your mind, I will do this that God will be happy with. I will do this, and my mind is associated with the inner man, and I will do it because of justification. I have the power to think and, and, uh, and understand moral and spiritual things, and I will pick the morally right thing, and I will do it because I do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I will do it so that I keep the moral law of God and not break it this afternoon. The mind is able to make moral decisions of judgments based upon the moral law of God. I am serving the law of God. I am a bond servant, a bond slave to grace. I am a bond slave to the law of God. I am bond... You, you understand? Man. This is so simple. We want to do what God says is best for us. That's it. God says these moral laws will be the best for you today. We want to do what's best for us today by obeying the moral law of God. Because we know if we pick the other road, we go down the other road, it will lead to something sinful and dishonoring of God and something that we cannot praise God about. 
We do not. It's. But you know, I'm still a wretched man. And I still will sin. I will think something about that sin. That it will please me. That it will do something. It will accomplish something. That it will be doing something. And I'll sin. Don't sin. Serve the law of God today. The key way to live the moral law of God is to love each other. Now, if I truly want to obey the moral law of God, it will have to be because my mind is set upon loving you. It has to be set upon my loving my kids, loving my grandkids, loving the people in the neighborhood, loving people in Douglas, loving the people in Augusta. I do it because I love them. Now, we're studying the book of Romans. We could go to a number of places, but let's stay in the book of Romans. Let's talk about book of Romans, what it talks about loving others. Here you go. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. You may not have time to write these down or look these up, but write them down. Romans 12, 15. If I love others, I will rejoice with those who rejoice. I will weep with those who weep. My love with joy for others. I love with joy for others. If you are happy, I will be happy with you. If you are sad, I will be sad with you. I will be, based upon you, I will be joyful or sad. I will love you when you're joyful. I will love you when you're sad. Romans 12, 3. For the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of of themselves than he ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. I will love with humility. I will love with humility. I will love and I will put you on a pedestal. I will love you and I will put you up on a stand. I will make you feel good with my words as I build you up. Romans 6.18, Romans 6.18, and having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. I will love you with my service. I will love you with my righteous acts. I will love you and serve you, and I'll serve you with righteousness, and I'll make you better with my righteous actions. Romans 12.6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, each of us exercise them accordingly. Talking about spiritual gifts here. I am to love you and be polite and act with grace. I am supposed to serve you with grace. I am to build you up with grace. I am to love you with my acts of grace. Romans 15.1 Romans 15.1 Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are weak without strength and not just please ourselves. I will love selflessly. 
I will love you selflessly. I will put you up above my needs. I will put your needs above mine. I will serve you. I will bear with you. When you're stronger than me, I will bear with your strength. When you're weaker than me, I'll bear with your weakness. I will love you. Romans 8, verse 25, 825. For if we hope for what we do not see, we persevere, we wait eagerly for it. I will love you with self-control. I'll love you with self-control. I will wait for the things that God is going to do in our lives, in your life, in my life. We'll wait with self-control. We won't try to rush God. We'll try to go in His timing. We'll go in His pace. Romans 14.1. Romans 14.1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. We will accept the one weak in faith. We will love with forgiveness, and our forgiveness comes with forgetfulness. Sometimes we love and remember. We're to love, forgive, and forget. I'll love you. My love does not pass judgment upon you. (laughs) You confess it and repent, it's done away with, it's over with. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love not be with hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. In other words, I'll love with joy for the truth. I'll hate what is evil. And I'll love what is good. And I will do it. I'll do it because I love you. And if we did that alone. Good gravy. Can you imagine this church? If we actually did that I'd start getting complaints about having to park so far away. And you come and complain, I'll say, praise the Lord. We need to love one another. We need to obey the moral law of God. We need to do these things with the gifts that God gives us for His glory and honor, which we're going to talk about in chapter 8. we got to finish chapter 7, though. Chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. On the other, my flesh, the law of sin. What will make a believer into a non-effective witness living in America? What will make a believer into a non-effective witness? Like that? Non-effective witness. In other words, you think you're witnessing, but you're not. What will make you a non-effective witness as a believer? Here you go. Number one, the only answer. The believer is a servant of the believer's sin nature. The believer is a servant of the believer's sin nature. You want to be a bad witness to this world you live in, the city you live in, you want this community you live in, you want to be a bad witness, you just give in to your sin nature. And you'll be just like everybody else on the broad road. You'll be just like every non-believer. You do what is sinful, you won't have anything to share with anybody else. Because they won't believe it. My flesh, the law of sin. The flesh 
seems to be talking about the body, the members, the actions that you do when you have a sin nature telling you what to do. It becomes a sinful passion, then a sinful action. When you do that, you're powerless. You are powerless. You are completely unable to do anything holy and pleasing to God. The flesh in its natural state is natural, is normal for a non-justified person. And they say, you're just like them. The law of sin has no love for holiness. You'll not want to do anything holy. You'll do everything evil and sinful. So the question is, will I serve God and follow His will for my life as I use the resources He offers against my sin nature? Will I serve God and follow His will for my life as I use the resources He offers against my sin nature? Only God can free you, free a sinner from the transgressions that comes with the law, which He does by the work of justification as a free gift by His grace and mercy, and then helps the saved believer with the battle that he has with his sin nature and the inner man in order to do the work of sanctification. Are you serving the law of God, or are you rebelling with the law of sin? Are you playing both sides of the, of the game? Romans chapter 8. God gives the Holy Spirit to strengthen the believer, to obey the moral law of God, and the power to resist the sinful actions of the flesh. A pastor was describing the difference between a prison and a church. He's describing the difference between a prison and a church. <clears throat> he says the basic difference between a prison and a church is just the difference between griping and gratitude. Griping and gratitude. <clears throat> in prison, crim criminals spend time Every day, walking, every walking moment, griping. The self-imprisoned saints, believers, spend every waking moment offering thanks. The pastor said, when a criminal becomes a saint, a prison becomes a church. He says, when a saint gives up gratitude, stops being thankful... His church becomes a prison. That's pretty good. I like that. Okay, here you go. My poor attempt at poem, at a poetry. Here you go. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna try hard not to mess this up. The attempt will be made. Try to get the message of the poem. Here you go. Deep breath. Okay. The roar of the world is in my ears. Thank God for the roar of the world. Thank God for the mighty tide of fears against me always hurled. Thank God for the bitter and ceaseless strife and the sting of his chastising rod. Thank God for the stress and pain of life. And oh, thank God for God. Pretty good. Let me see if I can do it again. The roar of the world is in my ears. 
Thank God for the roar of the world. Thank God for the mighty tides of fear. Always against, all, against me, always hurled. I messed up. Thank God for the bitter and ceaseless strife, the sting of his chastening rod. Thank God for the stress and pain of life. And, oh, thank God for God. We need to be a thankful church about everything God blesses us with. This week, be more thankful than you were last week. Be thankful that we're done with chapter 7. Be thankful for chapter 8. And if you get a good understanding of chapter 8, you'll understand why the believer is to be constantly thankful. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Father, you would help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. I pray, Father, that we would learn the lessons from chapter 7, that we have a sin nature, even though we're sanctified, we have a sin nature that still is causing us problems and trying to hurt our work of sanctification. I pray, Father, that you will use these times of sin for our benefit to grow in our hatred of sin so that we can do the righteous, holy will of God rather than sin. I pray, Father, that you would help us this week to be more thankful for the things you give us. Help us, Father, to be thankful for the moral law of God that teaches us things to be thankful about because they're gifts from you. I pray, Father, that we would be a thankful church, that there would be joy in this church because of the work of God in our lives. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.